morning and welcome to Rising. We have an extremely special show for you today. Brianna, what do we have? Well, it's great to be back with you, Robbie. Our panel next will break down some new polling on mass shootings. Plus, we'll discuss Washington Post reporter David Weigel's suspension and the January 6th committee's blockbuster debut. Those are some interesting topics. But first, Elon Musk is threatening to walk away from buying Twitter if the company does not provide sufficient data on its spam accounts. Lawyers for the billionaire Tesla owner wrote to the social media platform Monday saying, quote, Twitter has refused to provide the information that Mr. Musk has requested since May 9th to facilitate his evaluation of spam and fake accounts. Now, the lawyers say that Twitter offered to provide details on the company's own testing methodologies, to which they say Mr. Musk has made clear he does not believe the company's testing methodologies are adequate. So he must conduct his own analysis with the data requested. Robbie, do you think, like some people believe, that this is all an excuse for him to get out of this deal? I kind of do. Yeah. yeah. I, I know a lot of people still in the Musk camp are saying, or are fans of Musk, saying he's doing all this, right, to lower the price of it so he doesn't have to buy it for as much. But I think he's probably just trying to get out of it. But maybe that's the case. I think Kim, our, our friend Kim Iverson, still thinks that's the case. Could be. I don't, I don't know. I'm not... I'm not an expert in like complicated financial major acquisitions of large companies, so it's really hard for me to tell. I think it's really hard for people who sincerely think that Musk's vision for Twitter, and I count myself among them, cannot be worse and might, as, might very well be an improvement. Uh, it's kind of frustrating to watch this play out. It's weird kind of how it also is playing out on Twitter itself. Like these are not closed door. Yeah. This, this is... They're just tweeting it out, right? They're yeah. just well, tweeting it out. Which is why there are all these kind of security fraud implications and, and allegations. <laughs> I will say that Elon Musk started this saying, here's $44 billion, I want to buy Twitter. The idea that now he's saying, well, Twitter has this bot problem, that's not new news. That's a pre-existing condition, if you will, about Twitter. And then for Twitter to come back and say, okay, here are our methodologies. Here's our analysis as to how, how we've determined how many bots we actually have versus real accounts. And for him to say, no, I don't believe that, it does feel like it's fair for Twitter to say, I don't know what else you want me to do. We've opened the kabuki, as it were. And either you do your own testing right. or, you know, shut up about it. At this point, the, really, the ball really is in his court. and It'll be interesting to see what happens I, next. I think... And also, so they, they said 5% is that this is the threshold. Probably there are more than 5%. I think there's bots. probably I would, more than I would, 5%. I would gather they are. Certainly if we're, if we're counting, and obviously this is not a strictly defined thing, right? Yeah. So by bot, we mean just a count that was made that's never really been used, that doesn't have a person behind it. Or it can um, mean, people use it to mean uh, a person that's controlling many, many accounts. And so they're inauthentic accounts insofar as that they are designed to... <laughs> attack certain people or promulgate certain kind of messages, but it's not a one-for-one. One. If we include inactive people, it's got to be, you know, people who were a sincere user of Twitter at one point, maybe, or created an account, just one account to be you, and then never used it again, and that account still exists. There's got to be a lot of those in addition to the... Yeah, and when you look at the stats that say something like 3% of all Twitter users make all of the content. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just us, yeah. <laughs> Elon, if you want to buy Twitter from us, let us know. <laughs> well, YouTuber and financial analyst Meet Kevin said that while some believe Elon has to buy Twitter as is, 
U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Rule 10b-5, which targets security fraud enforced by the SEC, means that Twitter could be liable for omissions of the data requested or misleading material facts about the spam accounts. Kevin adds that just because Musk waived his due diligence, it does not mean he must accept a fraudulent disclosure. In this case, the amount of undisclosed bots to which Musk responded, correct. Oh, I mean, that doesn't make it correct. He, of course he would say it's <laughs> correct. Might be correct. However, despite the back and forth, Twitter has maintained that the sale will stay on course. One spokesman told the New York Times, quote, we intend to close the transaction and enforce the merger agreement at the agreed price and terms. The Times also noted that an unnamed source familiar with the situation said Twitter's concerns in sharing the data Musk is asking for stems from Musk previously teasing a rival social media service. Now, Musk has previously said he cannot move forward with the deal until Twitter shows proof that fake accounts make up less than 5% of its users, as the company has repeatedly said. So we're in this yeah, scenario where he said, I want to buy you. And they said, no. And then they said, OK, yes, buy us. And now he says, eh, I don't know. And they're like, no, buy us, please, buy us. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting posture to be in. Because for a long time there, it was people who were very, you know, supportive of Musk buying Twitter with the hopes that he would cure some of its legitimate problems. And now that it's Musk himself that seems to be taking a back seat, I wonder if those same people will continue right. to pressure him or even turn on him because it might be the case that he's reneging. And his concern about the bots, so, so it does have financial implications, sure. because, right? Because if so many of the users are not real people, are not people actually looking at the content, then that then it's actually less attractive to right. advertisers. Right. This is the, the business model of the company is they're right. selling ads. But it, also his plan was to switch from a more advertising-based model to a subscription, subscription service. Model. And if there's no real people to buy subscriptions, that's a huge that's problem also for Musk. A problem, yeah. but, it's really, but it's really a problem in either model. Yeah. If, uh, if, um, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of the probably the most horrible thing one, one of the most, uh, they said it was inadvertent, but consequential misstatements of the, of the numbers of social media was when Facebook inflated its video numbers mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. Or, and, you know, they claimed they had misread their own statistics, and, and they put out these numbers about how well videos were doing on Facebook, which following that, there was a, remember the pivot to video? There was yep. a massive pivot to video among major news organizations that w- cost a lot of money because producing quality video, as you know, as we know, is expensive. Yeah. And uh, they did that in, in because Facebook was such a driver of traffic, and they thought it would it would do even more based on the information Facebook gave journalism organizations about those numbers. Those numbers were off; they were wrong. Those companies just paid for doing that, and uh, and Facebook was sued over that. And I believe successfully, yes, hmm. yes, because wow. they were well. Then they were like, yes, they admitted they got it wrong. They said it was you know it was just just an error, just a mistake. And that yeah. was a consequential mistake for people in our field. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you know, you hate to see it. Sometimes some bad actors get caught up in these things. But as we see over and over again, the people who suffer the most, the greatest consequences from all of these mistakes are not actually the big content creators, but the little guys who can't recover from mistakes like that. And we've talked about on the podcast how the algorithmic changes have hurt people. We've, we've talked about how, um, sorry, on the show, did I say on this podcast? That's a, that's a, a bad habit of mine. It's a show? <laughs> it's also a 
podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, how people, you know, we have Senate candidates who have been basically told explicitly by Facebook, you know, we should control your messaging if you actually wanted to survive. And what does that mean for our political discourse and free speech and free political speech in particular that they're exerting this much control? So I'm sure that's going to be an ongoing conversation. Right. And Some, I something uh, and something Elon says he's worried about and wants to yeah. fix by taking over this platform, maybe. Well, sort of. well then buy it, Elon. <laughs> then Let's do stop it. dithering about these bots and buy them by the platform. Get it done. <laughs> well, Robbie, I look forward to hearing about what's on your radar next. Robbie, what is on your radar today? Well, Ilya Shapiro is a libertarian and conservative legal scholar, formerly of the Cato Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. He left Cato to join Georgetown University Law School and serve as director of its Center for the Constitution. He was supposed to start work in February. But just a week before he began the job, he tweeted two comments about SCOTUS nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson that got him in trouble. So I'm going to read them because the context is very important. He tweeted, objectively, the best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid, progressive, and very smart, even has identity politics benefit of being the Asian Indian American, but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy, so we'll get a lesser black woman. Thank heaven for small favors, because Biden said he'd only consider black women for SCOTUS. His nominee will always have an asterisk attached, fitting that the court takes up affirmative action next term. So Shapiro admits the tweets were very poorly worded and he apologized and deleted them. He was right to do so since the bad phrasing could have left readers with the false impression that he was suggesting black women would make inferior SCOTUS appointees, which would definitely be racist. But he was clearly wasn't saying that. He was saying that he meant to convey he believed Sri Srinivasan was the best candidate from a progressive standpoint, not his own, but from a progressive standpoint, but would not be chosen due to the gender and race considerations uh, that Biden said he would make. So while he was calling all possible candidates uh, inferior to Sri Srinivasan, not candidates of one specific race or gender. But this controversy got him in considerable trouble. Progressive activist students, some affiliated with Georgetown Law, called for him to be fired immediately. Instead, Georgetown launched an investigation, which didn't make a lot of sense because there's nothing to investigate. The university's free speech statement gives, quote, all members of the university community, including faculty, students, and staff, the broadest possible latitude to speak, write, listen, challenge, and learn. It is not the proper role of a university to insulate individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. Deliberation or debate may not be suppressed because the ideas put forth are thought by some or even by most members of the university community to be offensive, unwise, immoral, or ill-conceived. End quote. That's the policy. So the investigation concluded last week. Ultimately, administrators said Shapiro would not be disciplined because the tweets were sent before he took the job, meaning they were not subject to discipline. So Shapiro was initially relieved with that outcome, but has now decided that because of the rationale they employed, he has no choice but to resign. So he wrote this the other day, after full consideration of the report of the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action, and upon consultation with counsel, family, and trusted advisors, it has become apparent that my remaining at Georgetown has become untenable he wrote in a letter to Georgetown's dean. You cleared me on a jurisdictional technicality, but the report and your own statements to the Law Center community implicitly repealed Georgetown's vaunted speech and expression policy, set me up for discipline the next time I transgress progressive orthodoxy. And I'm pleased to say that Ilya Shapiro joins us now to discuss. Ilya, welcome. Good to be with you, Robbie. 
Yes, thanks for joining us. Can you elaborate a little bit on your decision making? As I, I kind of indicated in my remarks, uh, my understanding is, is you're saying that, well, they, they didn't actually clear you on free, free speech grounds, but just said that because these remarks were before you started the job, so it was kind of a technicality rather than, uh, you know, the right to say things that may be misconstrued or may be offensive. Right. I initially... Uh, celebrated the technical jurisdictional victory. Last Thursday, I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying my uh, cancellation culture nightmare is over and it's a new day. Uh, But uh, over the subsequent uh, 72 hours or so, as I analyzed with counsel and other advisors, uh, the report that I got from uh, the, the diversity office, it became clear that uh, it was untenable for me to continue. I would not be able to fulfill the duties of my job because the standard they were setting out is that any time someone was offended or even claimed to be offended by something that I said or wrote, whether that's in class, in an op-ed, whatever, uh, then that would be grounds for discipline and probably termination. I wasn't going to play that game. The, I, I, I could not do my job under that uh, hostile work environment, ironically, uh, that Georgetown had created. Uh, and so I saw no uh, alternative but to resign. Elia, can we talk a little bit about the tweets themselves? Um, because I think some people are probably curious about the standard for qualification that would distinguish Ketanji Brown Jackson from your preferred choice, who you said was objectively superior. And I think part of the concern is that there people are, tro- are having a, a hard time understanding what could be objectively superior. The qualities that you mentioned uh, were your preferred candidate um, was smart, that had the identity politics on his side, um, and therefore was a, a, a solid, and also was a solid progressive. Ketanji Brown Jackson has been, you know, championed by many progressives because she is unique in having the background as a public defender. She was a Harvard Law School graduate and editor on the Law Review. Has a very esteemed record that is frankly difficult to match. And people have pointed out that uh, people like Amy Comey Barrett, who have much less prestigious records, were championed by many conservatives, despite not having those typical kind of rings that they've had that she had jumped through. So what was it that you found that you thought made Ketanji Brown Jackson objectively, objectively, not subjectively, but objectively an inferior choice? Well, remember, I was tweeting before a month before uh, Judge now Justice Designate Jackson's uh, nomination. This was when uh, news of Breyer's uh, retirement broke. And so I was talking specifically about uh, Biden, President Biden's selection criteria and narrowing his pool by race and sex, which I found I still find uh, wrong uh, and offensive in and of itself. I'm, I'm against judging people based on the color of their skin or other immutable characteristics. And so my, you know, I'm, I'm a Supreme Court expert. I wrote a book, you can see it behind me, uh, about Supreme Court politics and the history of confirmation battles, Supreme Disorder, it's called. Uh, and my judgment is that Sri Srinivasan, the, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, uh, was the best candidate, which means by basic operation of logic that everybody else in the entire universe is uh, a less qualified candidate, a, a worse candidate uh, for that particular job. Now, you know, we can debate, uh, legal scholars do debate who would have been the best choice uh, uh, if Biden hadn't limited uh, his pool by by race and sex. But that was my judgment. But the point is, uh, if everyone else is indeed a worse candidate or less qualified, uh, then, um, you know, if Biden was to fulfill his promise, then we would end up with a less qualified uh, black woman, less qualified than whom? Then Sri Srinivasan, who I said was the best person. 
But why objectively did you believe that Sri Srinivasan was the best candidate? Objectively. Again, that's a very strong claim to make given the large number of people you could potentially draw from, the very subjective metrics that people use to decide what would make a qualitatively good Supreme Court justice. Why objectively did you believe Sri Srinivasan to be the best choice? Well, I know the records of the potential pool of Supreme Court candidates. Uh, Sri had already been on the shortlist for uh, for Barack Obama for the nomination that eventually went to Merrick Garland. I'm uh, well aware of the the writings and statements, uh, the full record of of the potential candidates, including both Srinivasan and and Jackson. And it was my judgment uh, that. Uh, that he was the, the the most qualified. And again, people can d dispute that. That's not that's not really the 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 issue here. The issue is that I inartfully phrased uh, my argument that uh, candidates should not be the the selection pool should not be limited uh, by race uh, and sex. But the, the fact that people can debate that, though, I think is really core to this issue. I don't mean to belabor the point, but the fact that it is debatable and therefore subjective raises the implication, I'm sure you can understand, that because there's a subjective debate, that there, mo there most certainly are people who happen to be black and female that are subjectively, and in some people's views, objectively superior to Sri as a candidate. Do you see that, th that that's kind of what's going on here? That that's why there's, there, there was the criticism that you got? Well, but that's I think actually you do, not, because That's you... not why the, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. That, that's not uh, why I've gotten criticism, and it's really, um, beside the point, because again, uh, you know, uh, it's it's fine for someone to think that someone else, whether uh, whether uh, Jackson, uh, another black woman, or someone else completely entirely, uh, is is more qualified. That's not. I didn't get in trouble because someone was criticizing my evaluation of the potential uh, uh, candidates. Uh, I was criticized because of a, a willful misreading, a bad faith misconstruing of what I said to imply that either all black women are lesser than everyone else or that no black woman could ever be qualified for the Supreme Court. And that's an absurd and bad faith and malicious mm. reading. And, and, and Ilya, can you, uh, you know, lay out for us, I know in your, in your letter saying why you had to resign, you noted many other, uh, prof other examples of Georgetown professors from a progressive standpoint um, who said things that you know may have or, or did offend uh, Republicans potentially on campus and that no, you know no there was no investigation of them right there there were a, a series of tweets by several uh, professors both law professors and from the main campus uh, talking about supporters of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's candidacy should be killed and castrated uh, saying that uh, you know mobs protesting outside of justices homes are are, are justified I mean other things that uh, seem uh, more outrageous uh, than than even the the bad faith malicious reading uh, of my tweets and yet there was no investigation there's no punishment nor should there have been I'm not saying that those professors should similarly have gone through what I did uh, but it's a situation of free speech for thee and not for me yeah, I think that that inconsistency is really important to point out, and I don't think that you should have been fired. And in fact, I think it's really important to note that you weren't, that you've chosen to resign. I mean, it, Robbie just framed it as you were forced to resign, but it, it was a choice, and I understand it's because you chose to preempt any particular, any in a, you know, future uh, pushback down the line or an investigation or review down the line should you say similar statements. But I, while I am very sympathetic to the idea that you feel constrained in your ability to do your job when the specter of more criticism is kind of hanging over your head, I wonder what you think of some of the impression of, from students who might be concerned 
about work trying to learn in an environment where they feel like there might be some criticism on them or some well, judgments of them on the basis of their qualifications because of their race. And I understand, I really want to be clear, I understand that you are not saying, and the tweet does not say, that all black women are inferior candidates. But you must, you must see that by setting up and using the word objective, without qualification, and still in this conversation, you haven't really qualified why you thought Shri was the objectively superior candidate. You're basically creating a straw man that implicitly means that there, it is not possible for someone to have a credible argument that a black woman could be actually the best choice for the job. Or anyone else, in fact, if that's the line sure. that you're taking, then, then it means that, you know, there, there is no credible. I mean, that's not again, that, that's just beside the point. We can argue the objective subjective thing. You know, I think on paper, uh, Srinivasan's credentials are far and above uh, anybody else's. And but he's why? shown that uh, with, what, it, with it. Can you give us some examples? I mean, this is why? not look, this is getting aside. This is the I'm not here to, to debate the, the legal merits of, of various kind of candidates, because the point that you that you say that you opened with with your question, which is quite valid. Uh, which is, you know, people feeling like uh, they won't be treated fairly or, or, or what have you. And just to be clear, I am not fearing any criticism uh, uh, of me on campus. I'm feeling I'm fearing discipline, uh, a further star chamber, a heckler's veto over uh, something that I say and write, which is very foreseeable, as I put in my resignation letter, as I'm evaluating or commenting on Supreme Court opinions coming out on abortion and guns or this fall argument in the affirmative action cases, that someone will be offended by that or quotes the dean's statement that, it uh, is antithetical to the community of, of diversity that we're trying to build here. All of those sorts of things. And that would immediately put me back into that uh, investigatory uh, 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 situation with a sort of Damocles over my head such that I cannot uh, 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 fulfill the duties uh, of the job for which, uh, for which I was hired. And look, I'm I'd be happy to meet with students. I, I was happy. I told the dean he asked me to uh, meet with students uh, who might have concerns. But there's no evidence that I've ever treated someone uh, unequally. And in fact, it's it's not ironic that uh, the criticism of me, I'm being criticized for being racist when my message is that people should not be judged. People should not be evaluated, uh, for, whether for the highest offices in the land or just in general, based on uh, race and sex. And, and Ilya, is, that, is there any recognition uh, among Georgetown's administration for how much of a blow this could be to that, that free speech policy, which I read, which is you know, quite clear, quite broad, extremely broad language, and that, that was not you know, the defense they employed in your case. It was this other technicality. Uh, I, you know, I have to wonder how, if there are other faculty or students or even others in the administration who, who are concerned about you know, that policy still existing on paper, but but not being the law of the land. Yeah, I, I would hope that there is concern that there's talk and discussion uh, uh, and by all members of the Georgetown community about whether the policy is just a, a, a piece of paper or a pixel barrier, as I put it in my uh, in my resignation letter, because the policy on paper, as written, is quite strong. As you read it out, that sounds that sounds great. And that's as it should be. Uh, but, you know, Georgetown is not the only academic institution in the country, unfortunately, that has these great soaring words, these commitments to uh, 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 essential principles of academic freedom and free speech and educational missions. Uh, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. And, and when push comes to shove, um, you know, uh, people not being offended seems to be a higher value. Mm -hmm. Professor, can I just ask you one one last question? 
all things being equal, if there were genuinely a, a, an assortment of equally qualified candidates for the job, do you think it's appropriate to use other criteria like representation, there having not ever been, let's say, a black woman on the court, very few women at all on the court because of past discrimination? Do you think that all things being equal, it's legitimate to use those other kinds of things as uh, criteria? Um, it, it's hard to know what all things being equal mean because no two uh, resumes uh, are the same. But certainly, uh, as I've written in my in my book, Supreme Disorder, um, lots of political considerations have always gone into the selection of Supreme Court justices, let alone other kinds of appointments and political decisions. Um, uh, you know, I, I would rather that that immutable characteristics not be something that someone be judged on, so that uh, these asterisks aren't aren't uh, uh, attached uh, uh, to people's names. So it's it's you know quite the hypothetical to to say that everyone is is uh, is is equal. But I you know that that certainly well, not everyone the case is here. an equal. But given that there are very qualified candidates like Katanji Brown Jackson, who people uniformly you know, many experts do believe is very qualified for the job. I think that that's really at the core uh, of this issue, but I won't believe it. I really appreciate you joining I, us today. I agree. I agree that she is qualified for her job. Yeah. Ilya, thanks you, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, struggle at the gas pump, not slowing down. So we'll discuss the latest. Stay with us. When it comes to getting relief from skyrocketing gas prices, Americans shouldn't hold their breath. Prices at the pump have doubled since President Biden took office, and just this week, the national average reached $4.86. That's according to AAA data. According to Goldman Sachs, economists, the U.S. economy is expected to slow amid Fed rate hikes. They also believe a recession could be averted. Uh, hopefully that is the case, but it does not look good. Those are those prices are, of course, not to make it all about me or complain relentlessly. <laughs> this overlapping with the exact period in which I purchased a car for the first time in 10 years. Uh, not good. Not great. Yeah. Look, what's really frustrating is to look at the fact that efforts to address um, price gouging, which is you know, driving some of the high gas prices, has been rejected. Uh, there was an effort about three weeks ago in the House to pass a bill that would address price gouging. You know, I mean address price gouging. By offering some relief to, to people at the pump. Okay. And what happened was zero Republicans backed it, and I got to come for Democrats as well because four Democrats, or, or rejected it rather, and four Democrats did as well, which people said, you know, even though it passed the House, means it's going to be doomed in the Senate. And this is the issue. If there were an alternative, if there were any alternatives promulgated by conservatives, I would take in good faith that they don't like the ideas that are being put forth really? by more Democrats. Drilling. Well, that's the problem. Joe Biden is open to that and has actually opened more drilling. But as we've talked about well, repeatedly, the Department was giving out fewer uh, leases this year. Then what? Then, or they, because he's already not giving out new leases. Joe Biden has already opened up drilling wells, much to the chagrin of the left community. Like that is that's just a fact on the books. So, but moreover, none of that is going to address gas prices today because it takes years and years for those lines to open and for production to start. Mm -hmm. So this is all it's it's a lot of conservatives and conservative Democrats as well who have an investment in opening up fossil fuel development, making the case that we should open up fossil fuel development, not because they care about immediately helping Americans in the middle of a recession, but because they have these bigger political goals. 
that's fine. At the end of the day, there have been some efforts in California to simply give gas cards to people. There have been efforts to the these these um, price gouging efforts to make sure that there isn't the kind of corporate corporate excesses and profit making that's happening on one end. And we have absolutely no conversation about how the country push push pushing this war in Ukraine is affecting our well, that is a, our oil access. Yeah, as that's well. the major issue. Uh, and and we talked about this on the show yesterday how. The Republicans, and not the majority of Republicans, but the only opposition to the proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, let's call it what it is, yeah. is among a minority of Republican uh, political officials. Mm. No, there are no Democrats, mm. and most Republicans still su are mm -hmm. supportive, but the opposition that does exist is 99% Republicans. It, I mean, that's true. What do, we, what do we make of that? That's true. I, I don't know what to make of that other than that the country is in a really um, transformative. Dark <laughs> You say dark, I say transformative. But we well, did. Well, no, because it's bad, because overall, it's still the overall majority of the country supportive of this proxy war. Right. To the indifference of the local population that is struggling mightily. And that indifference is bipartisan, even though, yes, it's disproportionately the, the people who are critical of it are on the right right now. So that doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well. And instead, we're having these kind of openly political debates. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I, I will openly admit as a leftist to wanting to use this gas crisis to invest in renewable energy because it's what's necessary for the long-term goals of the country. But I'm also not going to sit here and say we're going to magically build solar panels tomorrow because that has a longer tail on it the same way that opening up What about does. our utterly ridiculous, foolish Saudi Arabia policy? Weren't they, aren't they supposed to rescue us in this event? <laughs> well, that no. was the whole point of blindly appeasing and... Well, it has worked. And so no, it didn't work. You see what you get from kowtowing to, um, you know, bad faith actors that we never should have been in bed with to begin with, letting them kill American journalists with impunity and yeah. turning tail and, and pretending like that sort of thing didn't happen. And there's still, look, there's a, there's a global realignment right. happening where a lot of these countries are realizing that America's days are numbered. And America pushing this conflict with Ukraine, talking about how it would intervene against China if they were to invade Taiwan, really setting up the stakes for a real global shift where countries increasingly are saying, we're not going to follow America's lead into all of these conflicts anymore. We've had people on the show talk about how the global south broadly is not supportive of the world war in Ukraine. You had reporting, I think, in the New York Times a couple of days ago that had really weird framing about the potential famine that's coming down the pike and how Russia is somehow the bad actor for wanting to sell Ukrainian grain to Africa to ward off this famine. Like, like somehow Africa should starve because it helps America win in its efforts against Russia. I mean, this is where we are. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, it's, it's undeniable. It's undeniable that despite all of this, Americans are continuing to suffer. According to a survey from nonprofit Parents Together Action, almost half of families with kids don't have enough to eat, especially after the child extended tax credits expired in December. Half of American families, forget about Africa for a second, half of American families don't have enough to eat. One in five kids were food insecure even before this economic crisis. And yet we have money available at the drop of a hat, $40 billion is into or Ukraine. And people you, are yep. asking the question, yep. why not us? Yep. It's all defense. There's never any hesitance. There's never any, yep, whatever, whatever they need, endless supply. You know, it's, how, how, can you take, how can you take our government seriously when they do, when any time someone else somewhere in the world says we need, we, you know, we're fighting a revolution here. Okay, yeah, funded. Yeah, are you pro-America? Funded. I don't mean to be a historian. Are you, you don't even have to be that pro-America. You just have to be anti other people we don't like as much. <laughs> right. 
Right. Look, I mean, and when I mean, you turn on America later, you're you're well supplied. You're well equipped. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's literally the case. We we it's the phenomenon we, that duplicates itself over and over it's, again. It's the Marshall Plan. It's it's us going to Europe and rebuilding it as you know was we should have done arguably in the wake of World War II. But now we're looking at countries where we set helped to set up a universal healthcare system. We set up all of this amazing infrastructure. They were able to re- rebuild, and then our country is still infrastructurally in the place that it was in the middle of the last century. We have people who are you know, in this kind of media crisis and subject to a lot more, um, you know, suppression of speech, et cetera, because they don't even have access to the internet and broadband where they can find their own news. They're in the middle of the country with limited radio stations at their disposal. You know, this is the country that we live in. And Americans, I'm curious to see if even conservatives are going to start asking the question, why is it that there's never any, uh, how do we pay for it? As, as a question asked about the military spending as we send these, you know, four new missile launchers up off to Ukraine at $5 million apiece, why is there so much hand-wringing about any domestic spending on our own American children, half of whom that literally cannot afford enough food? The Republicans always complain about high... I mean, I can't, I can't take any Republican seriously, I mean, ever again, who's like, oh, the debt, oh, the spending, it's out of control. But what are you going to do about it? Because then when they are in power, there's no... There's no hesitance to spend recklessly whatsoever, no. espe- including and especially on defense, where we could easily make cuts, easily make cuts, 50 percent right. cuts. Well, the at le- least the left has been making the point for a long time that the narrative around how spending works and the idea that the national budget is commensurate is is comparable to one's own household budget in terms of needing to not spend over what you take in has never been true. And it's being demonstrated at a national level right now with the way spending has happened in the course of the pandemic and now. And it will be interesting to see who wins that narrative war. Is it going to be conservatives who attribute inflation to that spending? Wrongly, I would argue, because it's a combination of supply chain issues and this corporate gouging. Or will liberals and leftists be able to stick some kind of landing where they say, look, you're able to spend all this money on things that advantage the um, the military-industrial complex, can you please start spending some of this money on our kids? Because it really isn't a budget issue. It's a moral issue and it's a policy choice. Well, I think, like a household, we should spend within our means, but we should be more thoughtful about how we spend. We don't need to spend money on every other country before our own, especially on war-making and nation-building elsewhere. You're, you're right that unlike a household, well, like a household, you can spend beyond your means and you can do all sorts of shady things and eventually get yourself in greater financial trouble, which we are doing with our currency it's, over it's time. It's not a but, shady thing. That's not how national debt works. And we should definitely have an economist on to talk about why exactly that well, we, is. But, but they'll just, you can have a lefty economist who will say what you've ha- put on. You can have a more normal, non-lefty economist who will no, say what I've even, said. No, even conservative economists, they don't have any issue with the idea of printing money, and they obviously support doing so exactly in these kind of military implications. The only people who really deficit hand-wring are people who are not economists, people like Joe Manchin, who couldn't balance his own bank account uh, on his houseboat probably it's if he tried. All, but. but coming up, New York is raising the minimum wage to per- at the minimum age, rather. <laughs> it's not me. It's not, you were doing <laughs> a little excited. bit of wish casting I thought it was a, I thought it was a, you know, a different kind of story. Is raising the minimum age Age to purchase automatic assault rifles. We'll discuss that next with our rising panel. New York is raising the age required to own semi-automatic rifles. New Yorkers under age 21 will not be allowed to buy semi-automatic rifles under a new law signed by Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday. This makes the state one of the first to enact a prominent gun control initiative following a series of mass shootings over the past month. 
Hochul signed 10 gun-related bills, including one that will require micro-stamping in new firearms, according to NBC New York. Another law revised the state's red flag law. New York is also requiring more monitoring efforts on social media amidst this wave of gun violence. Let's take a look. The good and in the state of New York, we're now requiring social media networks to monitor and report hateful conduct on their platforms. Thank you, Senator Anna Kaplan, and thank you, Assigned Member Patricia Fahey. 72% of the nation believe mass shootings are preventable, according to a new CBS News poll. But CBS's elections and surveys director, Anthony Silvanto, explains there is a partisan split, with 44% of Republicans saying mass shootings are something we must accept. The good news is people think this is preventable. You get big majorities that say it can be stopped, it can be prevented, and it's not something that we have to accept. Now, there is a quarter who says that, unfortunately, this may be something that we have to accept in a free society. And I do want to point out uh, some partisan difference here. There is bipartisan view that it can be prevented, but there are four in 10 Republicans who do say that it may be something we have to accept. And that partisan difference is going to cut through a lot of this. Executive Director at Ultraviolet, Shauna Thomas, and GOP strategist Malik Abdul join us now to weigh in. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, Shauna, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, what do you make of those polling numbers? Well, it's encouraging, right, that people largely, a majority, as we know, believe that, that gun deaths are preventable. I think the, the fact that mass shootings really only happen in the United States is a like a a data point a reality that is really starting to be absorbed by a lot of people that this is not something we have to accept obviously it's incredibly sad right and discouraging that there are any number of people who believe it's something we have to accept it definitely stems from rhetoric of politicians who are defending you know access to um assault weapons or um you know at any cost and i think they're absorbing too that like that there's that there are real political obstacles to doing what needs to be done but the truth is and i think where we need to focus and what matters is that a majority does believe it's preventable and that creates space for the gun reform violence reform uh laws that we've needed for a long time now yeah, Malik, that 44% of conservatives who don't think anything can be done, do you think that that's an accurate reflection? Do they not think anything can be done, or do they think that things could be done to bring down mass shootings to rate sim uh, commensurate to those in other similarly you know, advanced nations, et cetera, but they are unwilling to do the things that distinguish uh, American gun policy from gun policy in other parts of the world? I think that America is, I think because of our Second Amendment and the Constitution, America is a little different than some of those other countries as far as what our Constitution allows. I'm not surprised that that number is 44%. I would imagine that a number of people, even though they may be supportive of gun measures, I compare it to, um, for instance, poverty. We all of us want to eliminate poverty. All of us want to eliminate homelessness. But if you ask the question, will the United States ever get to a point where we completely eradicate poverty or homelessness? 
Probably not. I think that's a realistic assumption, that, but that should be separate from whether or not you support different gun control measures. And I do know that more and more Republicans are beginning to support um, different gun control measures, whether or not things like monitoring, you know, you know, forcing social media companies to monitor hate speech. I don't know how that actually tackles the gun problem, but I do expect that more of these proposals will surely come out. Yeah, the, the social media stuff really irritates me. That, that seems like, uh, you know, finding someone else to blame and to scapegoat. I mean, social media companies already report actual threats of violence all the time. They're one of the most reliable, the companies themselves are one of the most reliable reporters of uh, potentially illegal content and dangerous content to law enforcement. Like, let's not, a lot of these the recent mass shootings have been law enforcement failures, to be frank. So it's it's I, I don't know. What are your thoughts, uh, Shauna, on uh, on the pivot to uh, well, social media needs to do a better job. That's the issue. I absolutely agree that social media needs to do a better job. It is co completely connected. What Hochul is saying and she's what she's doing is saying to social media platforms, you are culpable here, too. You need to be transparent about the radicalization of hateful ideologies, and you need to take responsibility. I mean, the number of mass shooters who have engaged in hateful rhetoric, harassment, literally saying online that they will commit acts of violence is staggering. A problem, however, with the law is that uh, Meta, for example, Facebook, Instagram, doesn't actually classify misogyny, literally hatred of women, as hate speech. They treat it as inherently political uh, and a legitimate point of view. Um, we at Ultraviolet, you know, have been demanding that they change that for years now. We have been successful in getting TikTok to ban misogyny. We've gotten Reddit to classify hate speech as, uh, hate speech as misogyny. But they all need to do it because misogyny is a form of hate. Period. And if you aren't recognizing at recognizing, excuse me, it as such, then you're certainly not tracking it. You're not being transparent about that tracking, and you're definitely not reporting it. Well, I'm not sure exactly, and I don't know that we know the details yet of exactly what is meant by increased monitoring by social media. Of course, these red flag laws are that I think people are broadly supportive of, I think you as, as well, Robbie, are geared toward catching folks who do say out loud the way that they often do that they are planning one of these kinds of attacks. And I do think that it's worthwhile to distinguish the idea of kind of free speech suppression with this idea that people are choosing to volunteer publicly their plans to commit these kinds of acts and that if they do so, law enforcement should be aware of it and intervene in the way that has been shown to be useful in so many instances. Uh, do you agree with that, Malik? Yeah, actually, I do. And I, and I think that it, it is a, a very different when you're talking about a social media company. And as Robbie said, you know, social media company, they already have reporting requirements. But if you just if you wanted to go the route of holding social media companies um, accountable, then we're going down the road, which is this, what similar people who are proponents of gun reform. Um, what they're talking about is that you hold the gun manufacturer um, liable if your guns are used in crimes then you are able to actually sue the manufacturer but will that apply to if you use a car to start killing people i think when we start going down that road like pinpointing specific things that social media companies need to do beyond what they're already doing. Will social media companies ban um, violent images? There, of course, we know there are many instances where um, young kids or they're on social media and they're brandishing guns. They're brandishing guns that we know are illegal and they're much younger than the age, um, the legal 
age for actually getting those weapons? Will we go down the road of then saying to social media companies that, hey, well, now you have to start banning that as well. I just think it's a very fine line. And I will also say that we should draw, I think that states are able to do many of the things that we kind of always say that the federal government should do. What um, the governor of New York is doing, I think what she's doing is fine. I think what uh, Florida did when they passed their laws, I think back in 2018, I think that works for the state. The question is whether or not the federal government should um, come in, you know, well, big, big mother or big whatever that's called. Well, but it's, um, it's clearly not fine. I, I, hate speech is protected speech. There's no category. It's not a category that falls outside of but, constitutional protection. So if she's saying that social media company, it, Governor Hochul saying social media companies have some obligation to purge hate speech. No, no, no. I, get, I just want to be really clear. None of that is being said. This is not about. She said no, this remarks. is not about liability. No one brought up liability. She says there needs to be more monitoring. I just want to be really specific about because we're going a little bit off off of what was she's actually saying. What she's saying is there needs to be more social media monitoring, which is the kind of thing we've been talking about all week with respect to these red flag laws. She can't enforce that. That, well, again, we don't know what what is being encouraged here, but the idea that she is encouraging police officers to look at folks who are publicly stating that they're planning to to do these kind of attacks, is that something that we're saying that we disagree with? Please get the police off their butts to actually do something. The phrasing is more social media monitoring, not... More Not monitoring on social media or more right. social media doing monitoring? Oh, I think it's going to be part. Um, I think the request is that it be on the part of social media. Um, no, I think she wants to obligate social well. media to do it. She doesn't want to make her own state employees do it because they never do. No, she well, wants again, that, to, that is, to that totally is, deputize some, uh, to some company to have to handle this. I think that that is at this point conjecture, but I think both people, as many eyes on these kinds of things as possible, I think would personally be the best outcome given how many of these events are stopped by red flag laws that it, it, it encourage exactly Governments that kind of Governments want social media companies to watch you because they're giving up doing their own jobs, which is to prevent violence. It's not Facebook's job to prevent violence. It's the government's job. So regardless of whose job it is, do you think it would be socially beneficial for Facebook to alert the police if they see someone who's making credible threats Absolutely, violence? and they already do. Okay, and I think I think that's what we're talking about, figuring out how to amplify yeah, those efforts. And and our guest, well, uh, so I'll bring Shauna back in. I, you know, misogynistic, anti-woman speech, terrible. And Facebook and other companies can certainly have policies against it if they want to, but it's not speech that's illegal. So if if a government can't, they can't force these companies to have those policies. They sure can't, but. Misogynists online are a hugely and fast-growing subgroup of the internet, and they are violent. And the internet, specifically the policies that social media platforms currently have in place, are responsible for accelerating and radicalizing disaffected men. This has there's a direct connection between this and the increase of violence towards women. Social media platforms absolutely have an obligation, and frankly, they are the only ones with access to the tools at the scale necessary to do the monitoring, to make sure that where there is there there are threats of violence that they can be flagged. That is not something the state can do successfully on its own. It just isn't. Well, what do you what do you make of that, Malik? Is there an obligation, given that there is not the same access to what's going on in social media, that if these companies build these platforms that are that big and have this kind of influence and profit ultimately from these platforms, do they in fact have an obligation to um, 
you know, address some of the, the implications of it to, to the extent that there is this relationship between domestic violence and these kinds of issues, misogyny, violence against women and these kinds of issues. There is a pattern that a lot of these mass shooters uh, have been violent toward women in their, in their past. You know, the Uvalde shooter shot his grandmother in the face before going off on his shooting spree. Is there an obligation there born if, from nothing else, the fact that they have the best ability to review and control, unlike, let's say, a local police department. I think we have to acknowledge that the First Amendment exists for a reason. I, I think many people would be totally, and, and they understand that these social media companies, in the instances where they're in these backroom chats or in any sort of these rooms and they're saying things that are violent or potentially talking about mass shooters, social media companies should absolutely, 100%, they should be able to report that. But if you're talking about misogyny and sexism, there's a lot of hate on uh, hatred on the on social media, period. I think it's an absolute cesspool and it's very nasty. There's hate against conservatives, hate against gays, hate against, you know, um, the LGBT community, hate against liberals. There's a lot of hate online. And I think if we start trying to piecemeal and say, well, the social media companies, they need to focus on misogyny. Well, how do you actually legislate that? Or how do you, from a law enforcement perspective, how do you actually deal with that? And, I don't think it's possible to deal with things and like has, that. Has violence against any of the groups you just mentioned gotten more, gotten worse? There's more of it in the, in the period since social media came about? Like, there's a lot of casually imputing this. It's very trendy to blame social media for literally everything wrong with our society. But, I mean, violence against women is a is a very very old problem i don't if it if it's getting worse and if that's connected to social media i would like to well, see some is that the metric because the shooter there, the buffalo shooter himself said that he was radicalized by well but now, but now we're, ta the we're taking the handful of mass shootings again right most acts of violence against women or against anyone are not are not done in the context of what we saw in Buffalo. Right, but if we're having a policy or... conversation about how to address these mass shootings, I think it's fair to say that if someone admits that technology was part of the process of them being radicalized... But if 99% of the violence has nothing to do with that kind of look, thing, aren't we looking at a if you're one of the 44% really of conservatives I, I, who, I think mean, that, <laughs> who think that there's nothing to be done about this, so we shouldn't change anything, then that's, that's fine. But, but I, think, one, I think that's... An I think that's an unfair characterization. I don't think that they said that nothing should be done. It's essentially what I said. You're accepting that these things, unfort as unfortunate as they are, these things will occur. I don't think that that's the same as conservatives saying that nothing's a problem and nothing can be done. I think that mischaracterizes um, the conservative position on like, that. I think that's a good. I think that's a good point, and I also think that it's uh, many leftists have pointed out that people said the same thing. Like you said about homelessness and child poverty, they've halved child poverty through a policy intervention in the course of the pandemic. They let it expire, doubling child poverty. And I think it's notable that people are learning that a lot of things that we say can't be done and can't be changed actually can. And it's about political will, policy choices, and our ethical uh, personal choices. I'll let you have the last word here, Shauna. Well, I do want to say there is... Well, 
quite a bit of research out there, um, which is why you're hearing so many more people talk about the connection between misogyny, racism, and the increase of violence towards women, and particularly women of color. Um, the There was a report I would point folks to that um, Every Town for Gun Violence were, um, published just earlier this year. I believe it's called Misogyny, Extremism, and the Rise of Gun Violence. Um, that's one example, but there are many academics who have been looking at this for a long time and have been publishing more recently about the impact of social media and increasing violence toward women. This is not a trendy talking point. It is a research and data-driven narrative that is designed to make elites finally in government and also social media platforms accept responsibility for what they've helped create um, and take misogyny seriously. Well, thank you to our guests so much for having this debate. Sean and Malik, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Coming up, cancel culture strikes again after the Washington Post suspended an employee for retweeting an offensive tweet. I am looking forward to discussing that coming up next. Washington Post politics reporter Dave Weigel has been suspended following him retweeting a, quote, sexist joke. He reposted a tweet that says, every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual, bipolar or bisexual. His co-worker Felicia Sanmez retweeted Weigel saying, fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed, which ultimately led to Weigel's suspension. This despite the fact that Weigel did take down the tweet and apologize publicly almost immediately. Weigel will be without pay during the suspension, according to CNN. Sanmez had a byline with Weigel just weeks ago, presuming the two worked closely on this story about the Iowa Supreme Court, leading some to question why Felicia didn't just talk to Weigel face-to-face if the tweet bothered her rather than blast him on social media. Before we talk about this, i got to get a couple of disclaimers out of the way. So I know Dave Weigel socially. We're friends. Uh, we were both groomsmen in a wedding. Um, he used to work at Reason a long time ago before I did, where at Reason Magazine, where I'm also employed. Uh, Felicia Sanmez uh, is also known to me and to us at Reason. We published uh, an account by, so she had accused someone of sexual misconduct, um, Me Too uh, issue. We published uh, an account by, uh, th- by that person um, sort of contradicting that. So um, she's not a fan of ours. So Yeah, I know the involved people. Just and that, that's fair to that disclose. Up. I have a professional relationship with Dave Weigel as working in media, but um, not a personal one. And honestly, I don't think there's really a dispute about the nature of the tweet. I mean, the tweet is funny because it is uh, reductive about gender and, and like right. it is what it is. Gender the question, are funny. I mean, it is what it is. The, right. the question is whether or not the punishment fits the crime here. And I think that even people who might have joined Sanmez in some critique of David Weigel's choice to retweet that tweet are now solidly in Camp Weigel because the idea of suspending someone for a month without pay. That's a massive financial cut. It's a huge financial cut. And it's incredibly coercive when we're talking about what's happening on the internet. And I will say this issue of people who work together at media institutions taking their claims to Twitter instead of HR or, you know, just talking to their colleagues really is a phenomenon that is, is, is getting out of hand. And it it, it says to me that the issue here isn't personal aggrievement 
or feeling like you want to raise a concern with your colleague or improve your workplace environment. It really is a punitive instinct that's about dragging people in the social sphere and trying to get there to be bigger reputational harms um, that aren't really about you getting along with somebody, making your job a better place, anything like that. I, I don't know why, you know, elite liberal media journalists like these people working at the Washington Post think that it's okay to just like attack your colleagues on social media. It is not okay and at no other no other employer would tolerate that. Right. They would just fire you. Right. If you have a problem with a colleague's behavior on social media or something they've said or something they've done to you, right, you're supposed to talk to a supervisor have that issue sorted out. I think that probably did also happen in this case, but and that's fine. But in addition to that, she is going off on him on social media. There was actually a lot of yelling at people who then also defended Weigel internally at the company. It is it is some crazy stuff happening. And like this is so absurdly unprofessional behavior that would not be tolerated in any other environment and should not be tolerated in this environment. It is yeah. correct to not tolerate it in any environment. Yeah. Like I, I understand a world where you, if you had a complaint internally and you tried to move it up the ranks, but for some reason people in t inside your institution were not hearing you out, weren't listening, and you felt like as a case of last resort, you were going to blast someone on the internet with the expectation that you were also gonna lose your job, but feeling like this is the only thing that, yeah. only recourse left at your disposal, fine, do that. But as someone, I gotta say, as someone who's both worked in media and who has also worked at a law firm in a more conservative, I think, typical corporate office environment, the idea that I would ever speak publicly on the internet about some inter-office dispute with the coworker and not expect to be personally sanctioned for that is like insane. so insane to me. Insane. <laughs> it's so insane to me. Which is funny because that's the original joke that got <laughs> this is, this is stereotyping certain people as insane. Really not really not like like going against that stereotype at the minute from some of this some of this behavior we're witnessing. Yeah and, and, and this is a problem. This this happened. There was an incident at the intercept while I was there as well where even if I were to agree with the underlying critique yeah. of the person who tweeted, very quickly it becomes difficult. Every, everybody starts to look bad. Everybody starts to look bad because the punishment does not fit the crime. And you have to start to ask yourself why somebody would even, what, what is the larger toxicity of this institution where people have this much animus that they want to publicly embarrass, not just curb their their coworkers' behavior, rehabilitate their coworkers' behavior, have a conversation about how their feelings were hurt with their coworker and people hurt, but publicly humiliate their coworker and threaten them with loss of job and income over a tweet. Not to mention the fact that if you go through, I'm sure as people probably have done now, go through this woman's tweet or any a number of other people's tweets, the tweets aren't good. Very few people have a clean tweet record of things that they're yeah, on. Well, I was just thinking, I, so I tweeted this this morning because this thought occurred to me. Uh, you know, I've seen people, I've made this joke myself. I think it's funny. I've seen, I, I've seen women make this joke, the joke about men that, you know, men, the men would rather do X thing than go to therapy. Yeah. It's funny. It, men it, don't have headboards. Men don't clean their showers. Right. Men have mold on their shower. Like, right. look, I'm not saying it's right, but people make these kind of reductive jokes all the not, time. I don't know that it's, I don't think it's wrong either. It's just right. It's, it's and, and the problem is that Twitter is this weird space, especially for journalists, that is both professional and personal. And your professional Twitter is benefited by having a good personality and having things that you tweet about outside of the professional context. And sometimes there are consequences for that. And that's not to say that people like Weigel shouldn't be careful because, look, people are going to look askance at your reporting if you take certain kinds of positions outside of the professional realm. And he should have to, he, people have to live and die on that hill as well. But the idea that there are professional sanctions 
to his salary as a consequence of this, I think has pretty uniformly made people support him. a whole him. month. I mean, that's a, if you think about it, that's a massive loss of income. It's a 12th of his yearly income. Yeah, well, you, you did the math on the room <laughs> really quick, more quickly than I could. Uh, but And, and he's, a, he's a major employee of the Washington Bills. I have no yeah. idea what he makes, but that's probably yeah. a good amount a of good money. A good amount of money. Now, amid the tensions, a video technician, Brianna Muir, took the opportunity to slam Michael Michael Gelman, the head of the Post video team, for tagging Brianna Muir as Brianna Taylor in a recent tweet when referencing the video team. Muir's letter to the newsroom reads, these tweets, retweets, not only hurt women in our newsroom, but make it extremely difficult to do our best work and ultimately creates a toxic work environment. Now, first of all, when you type something on Twitter, it auto-populates. When you do at Brianna with the same spelling as Brianna, it's going to fill in the more common... The, yeah. the most popular. I, th- I, so I think in this one it was not an autofill, though. Okay. So, Regardless, but you're right. That has literally happened to me. Like I have been people. I've been talking about Brianna Taylor to people and ha- have had people refer to me and vice versa because we have this. Oh right, it's happened to you. Yeah. It's yeah. literally happened to me, and I did not take it as someone. Like I, I, I once had a humiliating moment in high school where I had to go get something from an administrator's office whose name was something Diamond, George Diamond, and I went into the office and kept asking for Neil Diamond, and they yeah. were staring at yeah. me like. <laughs> yep. Because sometimes you just substitute when you a accidentally famous call your person's teacher name. Mom, did you ever do that in school? <laughs> right. And I and I understand if it's part of a, a pattern of bigger behavior, but that's not what's being. Yeah, a one-off here. incident like that. To, you have to, the same name. To, to, to consider that some evidence of some culture of. I mean, Jesus Christ. I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know what we've, we've come to. It, I, I say this often, and I'll keep saying it, and I'm going to say it again. Liberals should be careful not to overcharge more than they can actually prove. There is legitimate workplace discrimination that happens. There are all kind of wage theft claims that are rampant across the country. There are EEOC claims that never get you know, litigated because it's too costly and the barriers are too high to entry. And in the middle of all of this, we are undermining the cause by making, taking a small professional sliver of the population who has a very loud microphone and elevating their claims as the be all end all sine qua non of what discrimination is in America. And I just cannot impress upon folks enough that this is hurting the broader cause. Yeah. And it makes you look Freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see what comes of this. Uh, the, the public opinion, like I said, I think is really I think aligning. People are, I think people are on Team Weigel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of, so other, you, you can, you of course can talk about other publications, just not people at your own. So I'm seeing a lot of uh, Weigel sympathetic people, uh, yeah, really, really going off on social media about how truly nuts this is. Yeah. So, and it is. But we will have a more rising right after this. The House Select Committee on January 6th has brought on broadcast heavy hitter and former ABC News president James Goldston as an unannounced advisor for Thursday's primetime televised hearings. Axios reports that Goldston is producing the event as a, quote, blockbuster investigative special, including live witnesses, pre-cut segments, deposition footage, and previously never-before-seen surveillance video from the Capitol. You may remember James Goldston from the last time he made news as President Goldston was a key figure in ABC News' decision to bury Amy Robach's 2015 reporting on sex abuse allegations against Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew. So I guess this will be quite the spectacle. Um, 
will be paying attention somewhat because it is news and, and should be covered, but perhaps not treated with this kind of uh, either reverential or or reality TV style. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what there is even new to learn about it at this time. That's my well, criticism of this ongoing. Ne- never before seen footage. We'll see. Look, to the extent that this is supposed to be an optics, you know, an optical bonanza where we're, liberals are trying to remind people about the dangers of the Trump era and the threat to democracy and all of these kinds of things, why you would make the optics blunder of getting someone involved who is behind suppressing these really important Me Too stories that, again, liberals have made a really important prong of the moral case for why liberals should be in charge over conservatives. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> baffling. I don't, I, over and over again, there is this impunity that these liberal networks take toward what they, you know, not rules for thee and not for me. And they know how conservatives are going to latch on to having a figure like this involved. Why, you know, they, liberals have made so many legitimate criticisms of kind of sexist culture that exists. Fox News obviously went through the ringer with the Ailes debacle and Megyn Kelly and all of that that went down over there. This is a potential high road moment for liberals with respect to some of this Me Too stuff and also with respect to January 6th, which was and should have been a completely total debacle for conservatives to have people storming the Capitol in their name as they claim to be the law and order party. However, now I suspect the story is going to be about the guy running it, producing it, having been the person who suppressed these really important stories from the Me Too era. Stories that even conservatives agree, Jeff, you know, this isn't one of these Me Too French cases, this is Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew, which is really a story about power, privilege, and elitism, not just about Me Too. I think that's completely accurate, but beyond that, I just don't understand what the point is. This, this is not a mystery to unravel anymore. Like, we, we know what happened on January 6th, and I, I absolutely think Trump deserves a considerable amount of moral blame for saying things about the election for weeks that were not true and then speaking to an angry gathered crowd about those things and then encouraging some sort of action to take place not exactly not the exact thing that happened but it was a it was a mob that got out of control after being riled up by Donald Trump that is very clearly what happened he should be blamed for that uh, they tried to hold him accountable for that the vote failed it's over what more can you do? I don't think it was illegal conduct. I think it was unpresidential, and he should have not been able to be president. He should have been removed from office, but it didn't happen. So there's not more. It's like with the Mueller report or the or Russiagate. There's some new wrinkle we're going to find. We're going to learn, oh, he was secretly being coordinated by Vladimir Putin or something. No, we already know the thing. It was a bad thing he did because he's an arrogant, careless person when he talks, and his he had a core base of very... And, and then, now, even... or more of the people there didn't do anything wrong. They were just protesting as they're totally allowed to do. And some of the prosecutions of the people who did go in have gotten uh, pretty uh, out of hand. I mean, I I don't even want vicious, violent criminals held in solitary confinement for months. It's a cruel thing to do to people and, and should not be done and should not be done in these cases. But it's like that's. We don't. We're not going to. We've solved the mystery. There's it's not a mystery. Happen, and and that is a, a problem. But it's it's partly because Democrats can't come up with anything new. Now right. Republicans do this too. Obviously, they make a new boogeyman every week. 
you know, today right. it's groomers, tomorrow it's a trans person, uh, you know, and right. it's never, it's all a big stage show distraction from the fact that, as we talked about in another segment today, half of American families can't feed it their is. children, gas prices are through the roof, and on right. and on and on. And, and, th and this is a stage show distraction from the fact that those things are happening under Democratic rule, and Democrats that's, aren't doing anything about it. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Um, but, you know. <laughs> Here we are. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thursday's hearings will come off the heels of four major arrests in connection to the riots. The Department of Justice has charged four men as part of the Proud Boys gang with seditious conspiracy. Former leader Enrique Tarrio and three other men face uh, up to as many as 20 years in federal prison uh, if convicted of seditious conspiracy. You know, and, and to think that I like... The, they very well might go to prison for long periods of time. For what? Like, what was the cause that they thought? This is for, for the glory of a man who doesn't, who could not care less about them being in prison. Yeah, um, well, not going to do anything for them. So I, I feel yeah. it, there's almost a level of, I feel bad for them. They're so well, misled or deranged. But I, and I feel bad for pathetic. people who are, it is pathetic. I, I, let me ask you this, though, devil's advocate. Yeah. It is true that there does not seem to be, you know, this issue is not moving the needle for anybody politically. Either right. you're very much offended uh, by January 6th, you think it's the worst thing that's yeah. happened since 9-11, or maybe some people have said it's worse than 9-11, or you don't give a, a fig because you care about other things, some legitimate things or some illegitimate things. But why is that the case? Do you think that it is odd or says something about America that we do have these kind of bizarre images of people storming the Capitol and smoke billowing out, you know, you know, less, you know, a month or so after the election, you had, you know, people armed sitting at Nancy Pelosi's desk filing through papers. You had a, a, a woman shot and killed on the grounds. You had threats to hang the vice president of the United States, Trump's vice president out in front of the White House. And it doesn't seem to move the needle at all. Do you think that, you know, part of why the Democrats keep trying to foreground this issue is almost a disbelief that this is where the country is, that that is not at all engaging as, an, as even a media spectacle at this point? Look, I, I'm on the record for saying it was really bad. Obviously, it is not 9-11 or anything close. It was an embarrassing spectacle. It, it was a... a it's hypocritical because Republicans always said, well, we would never riot. We would never right. do anything like this. Well, you absolutely did, you liars. Yeah. You did exactly what you said you would never. I was you know, assured during the month of rioting that took place, the summers, uh, the summer in, in D.C., there was rioting that Republicans would never do this. Yeah, yes, you did. You absolutely did. Well, there are. And, but I, so I put it, just to answer your question, I put it in the con a, a similar continuity of behavior from the, the rioting that engulfed my city, for uh, for weeks over a course of a year with this city yes this city uh in and, well and that was happening in all sorts of other cities and many worse uh riots that took place but i i just saw what happened here firsthand and it was really bad when the leftists came through and did all that and then the right came through and did the same thing and people should stop doing that stop I, storming I mean, I, buildings I stop setting things on fire <laughs> stop defacing public monuments stop just go home and don't do that I mean, I was also here in 2020, and I don't know that I would characterize it in that way. But I think that what defenders of, you know, conservatism and the rioters say is that there is a quality of difference between those two things. And they don't see the, I've seen people make this argument, they don't see the January 6th rioters as equivalent at all to the George Floyd rioters. And I think that this Neighborhoods is part of were it. burned, not in D.C., I mean, but other, in other places, the kind of neighborhoods were burned. 
But I think the part of the issue is that what's really driving how you perceive this. I mean, I would argue that breaking into a federal building, you know, with the intent of hurting, you know, literally killing the president, the vice president of the United States and all these other kinds of things is a very serious crime. Of course, including among, especially among conservatives who think that those kind of violations of hallowed ground, of federal ground, of, of elected officials, of police killing, you know, attacking police officers to be really the height of impropriety. But I, I, the point I'm trying to get at is that it's all being driven ideologically. Nobody cares about rioters. It's not that rioters are good or bad. It's not that shooting people is good or bad. When you look at how people view Kyle Rittenhouse differently from, you know, someone like Philando Castile who was shot because he was armed, mm-hmm. legally armed in, in his car, basically because he was poor and just pulled over so many times, he eventually had a negative interaction with the police. When it, None of it is really about these broad principles. First Amendment, Second Amendment. It should be about these broad but it, but principles. It, you're right. It, it, it is not. for me. People it's not so for a lot of people, but it is for me. I'm consistent and, consistently against riots. I'm consistently for illegal gun I, ownership. I, uh, the Philando Castile is a horrible miscarriage of justice, and I, I also was... Right, but so most people are, and I just think that the conversations would be so much more fruitful if we could just talk about our ideological commitments, because there's nothing wrong with having ideological commitments. But we're never able to get to the main point of the issue because people who frankly aren't really qualified, myself included, I'm no constitutional scholar, qualified to be debating the finer points of what is constitutional and what is permissible under the law are doing that instead of saying, I care about police violence or I care about, um, you know, whatever critique I have of the Democratic Party and therefore think that 1-6 was justified or I think the election was stolen. Let's have a substantive conversation about what those underlying priors are instead of having these proxy battles in I think, the media. I think people should try to resolve their intellectual contradictions by being more consistent and less hypocritical. I think conservatives who, uh, who you know, rail against the Antifa terrorists who are destroying our streets and then like, oh, no, this was just a political protest. This is fine. Being totally hypocritical and need to, like, fix that contradiction. I think people on the progressive side who, who think this was, right, nine, this was nine, a 9-11 that occurred organized by Republicans but don't care at all about any of the protesting that destroyed public property or private property or, ha- or harmed people that went on uh, during the summer also need to solve that. Was the Tea Party wrong? The... Boston Tea Party? Was the Boston... Uh, I thought you were going to ask me if the 2000... <laughs> was the Boston Tea Party... Was that, was that destruction of violence and property? Like, I, I, I would have probably a, been against it at the time. I, I don't have a dog in the fight. All I'm honest. saying is that it's, it's not, not about... Sure I, would have I don't think it. you have to believe the right outcome is the same in every case. I don't think you have to blanket say protesting is wrong and resolve those contra- contradictions. I think you just have to make a case for why you think it's appropriate in certain circumstances. That's that's my that's my case I'm sticking to. Try to be consistent. More consistency is good. Well, we will have more rising after this. That's consistent because we always do. What's on your radar today, Ken? Well, Elon Musk took to Twitter and asked the question many of us have been asking. How is it we still don't know who was on Jeffrey Epstein's client list? Here's his tweet. Only thing more remarkable than the DOJ not leaking the list is that no one in the media cares. Doesn't that seem odd? Well, I care, Elon, and it is odd. There are many leaks that happen each year, so why not this one? In fact, in 2017, Jeff Sessions revealed that the DOJ had 27 open leak investigations of classified information. We read about leaks happening fairly often, and it's usually information of public interest, like when James Comey leaked his notes from his meetings with Trump or the recent SCOTUS leak regarding Roe v. Wade. Well, the public is pretty interested in Epstein's list, so why hasn't someone leaked it? 
Well, the DOJ might say there's just no such list of names to leak. They might claim Epstein didn't keep a detailed list and that figuring out who were his clients was a matter of piecing together bits of information from victim testimony, eyewitnesses, flight logs, and photographs. Unlike Heidi Fleiss, Epstein wasn't in the business of collecting money. So there's no need for him to keep a little black book or in Fleiss's case, a 28-page red Gucci planner. But is that true? Maybe he wasn't collecting money, but perhaps he was collecting something like blackmail. And if he was collecting blackmail, like his victims claim and like many of us suspect, wouldn't the blackmail have been found by police or investigators? And if it was found, wouldn't there be a list of names from that found blackmail? And what about Ghislaine Maxwell? She was found guilty of several counts of sex trafficking and is scheduled to be sentenced later this month. You can't sex traffic without having people to sex traffic too. So certainly the DOJ has those names. So if the names exist, there's a list, or at least a file. And if a list or a file exists, why out of all of the leaks we hear about each year, hasn't this one leaked? Either the list doesn't exist, is being held by investigators and they're somehow able to keep a tight lid on some of the most sought after information of this decade, or something else happened. Now, podcaster Adam Davidson gives a little insight into maybe why we aren't hearing more names drop. In a Twitter thread, he writes, I spent two years working on the Jeffrey Epstein podcast, Broken. I became close with many of his victims and learned a lot of stuff that for annoying legal reasons we can't publish. He goes on to say, I knew that rich and powerful men can get away with a lot. I didn't realize just how much they can get away with and just how much the entire system, courts, journalism, prosecutor, works inadvertently and deliberately to reinforce their impunity. I think we all know that, say, Bill Gates and Clinton probably were up to no good. At the very best, they knowingly spent time and casted their halo on a man they knew was a serial rapist of children. Though hard to believe it ended there. Yet they're given heroic treatment every week in the media, playing, paying no price. Jeffrey Epstein is not some outlier, some freak who is now dead and best forgotten. He represents something essential in all of our systems of authority, law, courts, higher education, nonprofits, media, etc., that there is that is there right now today. When I think of the unbelievably brave women like Virginia, like VRS Virginia, uh, Pink Pepto-Bismol, and so many others who were dismissed, slut-shamed, etc., while cowards and evildoers were lauded, I feel like something deep is broken in the world we live in. I say all of this a few weeks before Ghislaine Maxwell is sentenced and the world we will likely put aside the and the world will likely put aside the Epstein story forever. Some weird set of crimes that two awful people committed. The bad guys won. They pulled it off. They raped children or sat by and watched others do so. They used their elite connections and access to power. The weird thing is we all know what they did and we don't seem to care. Oh, people maybe care. They just don't want to be ruined. In fact, Adam acknowledges his own risk in reply messages to others saying, there is a real likelihood that my life will be ruined. I could write a lot of stuff about a lot of people without worrying, but not these guys. So maybe there is a list to leak and maybe someone inside the DOJ has tried to leak it, but maybe it's news organizations who won't publish it. With the amount of public interest in this case, and yet we still can't get any more names than the ones revealed by mostly Ju Virginia Jufre. This once again reiterates that in the entire Epstein saga, there seems to be a showcase of the powerful protecting the powerful. So what do you think? You know, Brianna, I'm going to ask you th this one because you're the lawyer here. So, you know, you know, I, I mean, I, look, leaks happen all the time. I know that it's supposed to definitely not be leaked. It's not supposed to happen. But people definitely want to know who these names are. I mean, what do you think from like a legal perspective, what maybe is going on? Like, why why are they at least not releasing the names legally? Uh, if not leaking them. 
I'm sorry, but I can't help but draw a connection to the recent Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial and the threat of talking even in pretty vague terms about abuse that you're aware of, abuse that you've you perceive yourself to have you know endured in the past. To, to the point that you made about the podcaster who did a deep dive on this, he's he's talked, he's spoken to victims. You know, the stories are there. There are people, you know, with, with with evidence that is corroborated, at least in the public sphere, who are unwilling to come forward because if you cannot prove at a fairly high standard that these things happen, then you are subject to defamation claims. And even if you are ultimately not successful in those defamation claims, who has the money to spend defending those claims once they're actually leveraged? And that is why people have these concerns about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, because they are, again, an example of rich and powerful people who are able to use the system to kind of, you know, uh, litigate their personal and private dispute in the court of public opinion because they have the means to do so, whereas other people who are smaller, like these victims, who don't have the resources, are basically forced into silence. I think that's concerning. Yeah, yeah I so agree with you, Brianna. I actually do. <laughs> Go ahead, well, Kim. I just wanted to, to yeah, just mention that, you know, so so what's interesting about that is that there is then a possibility that the DOJ has this list and they have maybe released to some media people. You know, these are the people we're investigating. I mean, I'm not sure really what they may or may not have said, but let's say if they did say this, then it's very possible that media organizations don't even want to touch it. That mm -hmm. they say, we don't even want to go there. These people are too rich, too powerful, too, they're going to come after us legally. Like, as you mentioned, in Amber Heard's situation, and so we're not going to even begin to touch Well, these. but in that case, I think they could because they could just say the DOJ is investigating these people. That is that would be a fact if, if it was a fact without necessarily suggesting any of the underlying. Because if you assert that the underlying accusations are true or there's some validity mm -hmm. to them, then you could open yourself up to liability. But if you just said these are the people being investigated. Right. But, you know, not everybody investigated by the DOJ or the FBI or the government is guilty necessarily. Well, there's, there's also well, the threat of witness intimidation. I mean, we have Epstein, you know, dying in, <laughs> in, in, in captivity. I mean, there are all of these things when you're dealing with people at this scale of affluence, when you're talking about some of the richest people on the entire planet and most powerful and influential people, royal family, Bill Gates, think people like this that are implicated. I think there's probably a legitimate concern from the DOJ that leaking these kinds of names could lead to a, a interference with the trial that ultimately doesn't, you know, help the interest of justice also. I wonder if they're yeah. having some trouble with the with you know, the, the victims, obviously young at the time of the alleged uh, crimes, you know, might have trouble recalling, you know, who was who in various scenarios or if they give, you know, conflicting. They say, oh, they say it one way and then, oh, actually it was like this. Then, you know, that makes uh, that there, there's a loss of confidence sometimes in the in investigators. And if, if that is if that behavior is known by media people that will really spook them because then it does then they think their risk of liability will be greater so it could be something like that yeah I, it might not even be liability at all i mean they just might be afraid of other sorts of consequences these people mm -hmm. are very powerful so it, it might not even boil down to well we're afraid of being sued yeah you're right you could maybe overcome that by well you know we just got this from the doj this is factual this is who they're investigating but if that's not what you're afraid of if you're not worried about them suing you but you're afraid of them collapsing you them ruining you them coming well you ending up dead in a jail cell like two people who are connected heavily to this to these crimes you've got Epstein, obviously, who allegedly hung himself. And you have Jean-Luc Brunel, the modeling agent who also allegedly hung himself and was found dead this past February in his jail cell. So you've got the guy who is potentially providing the girls, the models, 
And then you have Epstein, who we all know what he was doing. And they're both dead now. So you're, we're, you know, this is, I mean, so I can understand. But I think why most people, people in media are afraid. Of, no, I think they're afraid of lawsuits more, <laughs> more, more than dying, if that makes any sense. Uh, certainly their, their bosses, their editors, the people who have to sign off on certain decisions. Um, uh, be, and because, you know, sometimes because of how easy it can be, it's increasingly easy uh, to really ensnare a, a person or an organization for just not giving, just not getting every single thing exactly 100% right beyond any sort of doubt. Uh, yeah, I yeah. don't know about that. I don't know if they're, I, they, I don't know if they're worried about lawsuits when it comes to this particular, I mean, I, I yes, of course, they're they always worried about lawsuits, but I think it's something much bigger than that. I don't know if it's death necessarily that they're really, truly worried about. But, you know, people like Jean-Luc Brunel and Epstein, they were very intimately involved in this entire scandal. It's beyond a scandal in this in these crimes. They were intimately involved. They knew who was who the girls were. They knew who the men were. They provided all of it. They they facilitated it. So it's under, you know, yes, they ended up dead, but other people would just end up ruined. And I think a lot of people are worried about I think there's a lot of powerful people in this country that are much more worried about. Losing everything than a, a loss. Maybe I, I've I've covered you know in, in my role as a journalist I've covered some very salacious things and I've in the times where I've been thwarted in reporting something I've really wanted to report that it's a salacious topic it's always been because someone uh, an editor or a supervisor says we think you're right. You know, we're pretty, we're very confident, but we just, we can't take the risk for liability, not for, not for because they'll come after us or not, not because anything like that. It's, it's the liability. That's been what's been, what it's been in my case. I know a lot of journalists who operate that way. Obviously, this is a, you know, it's slightly different scenario because people have actually died under, uh, under Suspicious. sketchy circumstances, but that is really what holds a lot of uh, journalists back generally. Or maybe the boss is involved. I mean, after all, it was a very powerful <laughs> list of people. So you know. Everybody's involved. There's nobody not involved except for the three of us. So that's why we're so confused. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Kim. Uh, we'll have more Rising right after this. Pod Save America co-host Dan Pfeiffer told MSNBC that the posts with the most engagement on Facebook come from conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. Let's listen. If you go to Facebook on a daily basis, the most the posts with the most engagement are from Dan Shapiro, or Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Candace Owens. It is right-wing content. It dwarfs progressive content. It dwarfs mainstream media content, which is actually should be the part that scares us the most, that Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire has more followers and engagement, many times more than The New York Times or CNN. That is a problem for democracy. So problem for democracy? I thought hearing different viewpoints and allowing, allowing people to choose what they hear was actually what democracy is fundamental to democracy. Kim, when your radar gets more views than mine, which is most days, uh, it's wrong and it's a problem for democracy. <laughs> problem for democracy. Uh, I hate when other YouTube shows do better than us. Democracy. What's democracy? Is, there's no curiosity about why this is happening. And that's the fundamental issue, right? Like what I have noticed again and again is that when there is someone who's very popular, let's say a Joe Rogan type figure, who, by the way, self-identified as a progressive, was an endorser of Bernie Sanders, the instinct from liberals is to push them away. And if you mm -hmm. say, and I've noticed this in my personal life, if you say any, something even vaguely 
sympathetic or just understanding about a conservative point of view, the invitations to come and talk on conservative media come pouring down out of the sky. I can't fight my way onto MSNBC to talk about something like a minimum wage hike, but the conservatives are, are always happy to have you on. So they're really seeking out, they're, they're surveying the terrain, seeing what's popular and what people want to talk about and bringing folks into their fold. And liberals have, are, are more the type to have a litmus test and say, you're not allowed if you don't conform to our not very ratings driven interests here on our show. It's, it's the yeah, allure of the heretic, which is something yeah. that both sides do somewhat because, right, because MSNBC and CNN want to have on former Republicans who are just going to trash Republican. Oh, how heretical. Uh, <laughs> to basically turn yeah. into a lib. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. and conserv- but you're right, conservatives want to bring on, uh, when they find uh, progressives or liberals who, you know, depart from the new progressive orthodoxy, particularly on speech or on maybe gender issues mm-hmm. or race or something. Yeah, they, they hold them up on a, on a platter. They want to platform them, platform them all the time. So, but I, I agree but, you know, with you. And, and it, is, it is true that uh, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Tucker, yeah. Fox Post in general, Breitbart, Daily Wire, uh, very, very popular on Facebook a lot of the time. I mean, Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino, like, uniquely so, like, really successful yeah. Facebook operations. But it's not, that's tracking shares of their articles. You know, some people are sharing and reading those articles. Like, it's what you point out, Kim, that, you know, liberals, Democrats are watching Tucker. It's the same thing. It, it's the other side is paying attention to what those people are doing. They're not always sharing, agreeing with it, but it's, it, what, it's what's getting attention. And there's no, uh, on, especially on, on Facebook particularly, there's no, uh, and the, the audience there is a little bit, is older than other social media sites. So that, you know, also fits with a greater enthusiasm for conservative to- uh, content. But there's just no successful competition in that in that sphere for progressives and to think that there was but sorry go ahead ken yeah well just nobody agrees with them that's i mean the issue is is that sometimes i agree with tucker so that is why i watch tucker because sometimes i agree with them a lot of times i don't agree with them Uh, i don't agree with them on things like immigration but i do agree with them often and then when i turn on msnbc i feel like i never agree with them ever on anything and i think that's what's gone on so many people are you know, I would sometimes turn on the radio and I'd hear Glenn Beck talking and I wouldn't I couldn't believe my ears that I was actually agreeing with him on something. And I just sit there and like, I, am I agreeing with Glenn Beck on something? I mean, this is just really bizarre. But I do find myself agreeing with him from time to time. But again, not agreeing with people that are supposedly representing the left or Democrats, hardly ever agreeing with them. And I think that is the majority. And that is something that MSNBC and CNN and these other you know, these other really pod save America, these other really liberal outlets, they're failing to understand is that people will at least connect sometimes to some of these outlets and hardly ever to them. And that is why they're getting the actual engagement on the other side of the aisle. It's not that we agree with them all of the time. We don't. But it's just that it's enough of a time to say, well, this is something I'm willing to share, something I'm willing to connect into. Well, specifically for me, it's not substantively. There's there's little to nothing I substantively agree with Tucker Carlson about, and there's plenty substantively I, dis- I agree with people on MSNBC about, but I don't watch shows to confirm my priors, and they're not even particularly informative about how to from, how me how I can like bolster my arguments or be better informed. 
What I do think that Fox News does is critique power in a way that the liberal stations don't. So I think that the critique is often incorrect. I think it's a kind of faux populism. I don't think it's you know, legitimate, but at least they will identify legitimate problems with the government and with the current administration that is very hard to find on MSNBC or CNN, where it's basically coming up with excuses as to why everything is not Joe Biden's fault. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but there's no government accountability that really comes through on the liberal corporate channels. To, to round out this, uh, <laughs> I, I probably disagree with virtually everything I hear on, on all three of them. I don't agree with so much of what I hear on Fox. I don't agree with so much of what I hear on CNN, CNN and MSNBC. So, uh, Fox News, though, <laughs> continues to reign supreme on cable with its audience growing while rivals view decline. The network drew 2.27 million total viewers in primetime, up 4%, not 40%, up 4% from May. This while MSNBC averaged one. 0.02 million, down 32%, and CNN averaged 660,000, down 28%, all according to Nielsen figures. Those are some low numbers. Yeah, low. but again, it just goes it goes back to, I turn on Fox and sometimes I actually agree with them, and it feels good to sometimes agree. When I turn on CNN or MSNBC, all I do is get angry, and I don't want to be angry all the time, right? I want to at least sometimes nod my head in agreement with something I'm hearing, and then, the, and then I hear something else and I say, oh, no, that's not, and then I hear something, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, that's what people usually want to do when they're watching the news is they want to have that experience. They don't want to just disagree all the time. So I well, just think so, there's more independence yeah. agreeing with the conservative view, with the supposed conservative. I don't even know if you want to call it conservative or liberal. I don't know which is which anymore. But there's so many more independents, I think, uh, who have been always Democrats their entire lives. Even my dad. My dad has been a Democrat through and through, hippie. You know, through he protested the Vietnam War. He's that kind, drove a Volkswagen bus. He still has it in the garage. He's that guy, and he even will turn on sometimes Fox News and go, "I cannot believe I'm actually agreeing with these people." Mm. Yeah, and I do think that has a lot to do with the critique of power. Nobody in a country where so many people are struggling wants to turn on the TV and have a bunch of millionaires tell them why everything is actually okay and how we should be. You know, that Biden's job, you know, approval numbers aren't actually reflective of how ordinary people feel because, oh my gosh, look at this chart of, of how job numbers are up over the last few months. You know, it, there's a kind of de detachment with people's lived experiences that I think is really frustrating. And of course, the people on Fox News are also millionaires and are also out of touch, but they do tap into a legitimate strain of discontent. And I think when you read, if, if you read that New York Times review, View on Tucker Carlson from a few weeks ago, one of the things that pointed out is that he doesn't reinvent the wheel. He scans popular stories from the broader conservative media space, sees what's doing well, and pulls them in to talk about them. And you don't see that on liberal spaces. I think that to the extent that there are energy points that people are focused on, they only talk about those things that are really uh, rehabilitative of the establishment political narrative. They're not really interested in going out and finding organically what's going on in the, in the community. Yeah. There's right. also just yeah. not a lot of debate and discussion going on on any of these channels, to be frank, mm -hmm. uh, not nearly the degree to which we do here on our show. And I, I think people just get sick of that. If you're just brought on to agree with the, with the host, the host has already said what they think in their opening remarks. And then and here to, you know, tell you why I'm so smart is this person who is a contributor to us. And then they just say, yes, you're right. You're great. It's all exactly like you said. That just seems boring if there's no there's never right. a, a kind of crossfire type thing going on. Hmm.
But yeah, that's what I mean. People like to watch and they like to have the experience yeah. of I agree with you here. Oh, I don't agree with you, but right. it's uh, but it's right. okay. I'm not canceling you or shutting you off or hating on you because right. I it, might and agree it doesn't have to be loud and angry shouting at each other. I think that is totally unproductive, and I, I'm glad that model has kind of gone away. But there should be actual whatever. Actual be quiet, debate. Robbie. You don't know what you're talking about. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you try to cancel me? Kim Iverson is trying to silence me live on television. <laughs> all right. Get tomorrow. out of here. What's that? Get out yeah. of here. Yeah. Well, all right. We're all, well, we're all, all going to get out of here. Until uh, <laughs> tomorrow when Jordan Cheriton and Amy Tarkanian will be here for our panel. And we'll continue to follow the latest debate on gun control. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you want to listen to us on the go, all of our shouting, screaming matches, you could do that via podcast. Get us everywhere you download them. Thank you guys so much for watching, and we will see you tomorrow. We're going to kill each other first. Bye. <laughs>